Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Well, I've got the lozenge issue again today. <laughs> what do you do when you like can't finish the lozenge? Do you would it be gross if I put it on the carpet? <laughs> if I was Tiknat Han, I could just like enjoy my lozenge and you'd be glued. <laughs> <laughs> I went to see him speak once and um, <clears throat> he took a long time walking in and then sitting down and then he peeled an orange and literally the entire theater was at the edge of their seat <laughs> watching him peel an orange so I can't get away with that It's wonderful to see uh, the settling um, happening. Uh, it's wonderful to hear as the retreat's gone on in the interviews, people coming in and saying, I'm working with X, Y, or Z, and like I really am seeing it. <clears throat> also to feel as a community how we practice together and also how we become more absorbed uh, in our own experience and also uh, with each other. Um, an old Zen poet <clears throat> named Chao Jiang uh, 8th century uh, wrote spring songs already quieting the ancient source still bubbles forth it's a mistake my modern friends to wound the heart by trying to cross the stream the title of the um, um, poem is uh, the stream outside the gate. So when you go into a monastery, there's usually a gate. So you imagine we have this, and just right in front is the stream. Listen again. This is an interesting poet. We don't know much about him because he uh, was a monk, 8th century China, wrote uh, a few poems became well known as a poet. This was very, very popular 
in China and Japan is that the monks would, as they practice, become artists. And I think we know when, we, when, when you study Asian art that it's very mixed up with contemplative practice. So uh, anyways, uh, the story is at one point he had some kind of realization in his practice and he stopped writing. We don't know anything. We don't know what happened after that. So anyways, here, here's the, the poem about the... It's about this river, this stream. Spring songs already quieting. The ancient source still bubbles forth. It's a mistake, my modern friends, to wound the heart by trying to cross that stream. What would it mean to be present with that stream? That stream that's in front of us all the time. Have you seen it? <laughs> Sometimes that stream is images. Sometimes it's the weight of the past. Sometimes it's compulsions. And sometimes we feel peace. A couple people have said in interviews, I don't know what to do. I don't have big emotions. <laughs> to respond to the actual stream that's in front of us right now. It's a mistake, my modern friends, to try and cross that stream. How many of us are doing that? Oh yeah, here's the stream, yeah, but I'm not into that. I'm into that over there. That's the stream out front. This is the stream out front. Same stream. And that ancient source still bubbling in the stream. That's the stream the Buddha touched 2,500 years ago. And it wasn't just the Buddha. Many people in history before the Buddha. And the stream that the Buddha touched is running in Batavia, New York now. running in your own heart right now. The Buddha didn't discover anything. He just touched that ancient stream people in every culture touch. You touch. <clears throat> the sounds and the colors and the smells and the faces on this retreat, that's the stream. And you take it in, or are you trying to cross it? Maybe you're working on your bowing, but are you taking in <laughs> other people's bowing? Every time I put my hand on the doorknob going into my room, I think of uh, Sandra, whose job is, I don't know if anyone's seen her job, but 
she has this quiet job where she goes around and cleans every doorknob in the building every day. This job was created um, a few years ago because Rose was extremely ill on a retreat. Uh, and so uh, Simone, who is a bodhisattva in our community, decided she would create a job of cleaning doorknobs every day so the whole retreat wasn't in the infirmary with Rose. That's the stream. That's the stream. Sitting in a bus shelter, waiting for the bus in the winter, in the suburbs, outside Toronto. That's the stream. In a subway, in the summer in Manhattan, humid, packed, everybody sweating. That's the stream. <laughs> Losing a diamond. <laughs> From your engagement ring <laughs> in the subway in Manhattan. It's been known to happen. It's a mistake to wound the heart trying to cross the stream. Why struggle so much when all you need to do is stop and see? I hope we're all learning that lesson. Me too. It's always right here in our breath, the protection, right here in our breathing. We have all the time what we need to practice. We may not always get our needs met. We may have times where our bodies in a lot of pain or our hearts are really broken. But we have what we need to practice. It's simpler than you think. It's an attitude. And we come on retreat so we can find that attitude again. <laughs> That's why I come. I'm the first to say that life is really complicated. I'm not like an idealist. I don't live in a monastery. I have a really complicated life. And I spend way too much time on airplanes. And I have what I need to practice. Um, as many of you know, you know, I've struggled so much with uh, moods in my life you know, since I was a kid, especially the down ones. So I know what it's like to think, oh God, nothing's going to save me. And then within all of that, you remember, oh yeah, I have this practice that I can do. And sometimes things are so dark that you can't see what about the practice you need to turn to. And then you remember, it's just the attitude. It's the attitude. I can work with this. I teach in a tradition that says, when the going gets tough, when there's pain, 
when there's suffering, when there's distress, you just take the alignment of the Buddha. Now, we don't all have the physical ability to sit still on a dragon. (laughs) But whether you're on a chair, or whether you're kneeling, or whether you're in a bed, or whether you're sitting in the bus shelter in Etobicoke in the winter, or in that sweaty, humid, smelly, loud train in Manhattan. You can stop. And you can enter that stream. When you grasp for something outside of you all the time, you wound your heart. Just shoving arrows in there. How many of you have wounded your heart in this way? Reaching all the time across this. Thank you for the show of hands. (laughs) For everyone against the wall. (laughs) Or how have you wounded your heart on this retreat maybe? Just noticing small things like how you've done your practice position. Last year I got such and such a job. Or just making up stories around your sitting. Like what if you went into the zendo and you sat down just for the sake of sitting? (coughs) I will say this every single Dharma talk forever when we're on retreat. But some people are not in the meditative experience because they're trying to get across to the other shore. They're trying to get across the stream. Wounding your heart. How many of us are not fully in our relationships because we're in love with our idea of what the other person could become? That's trying to reach across the stream. We've all had the glimpse occasionally, if you have a daily practice, where one day you wake up and you sit. And then the practice ends and you're like, I wasn't even thinking about it. I just woke up and sat. Has anyone had this experience? Now there's no show of hands. You just sit for the sake of sitting. The other thing you can turn to are your vows. What are our vows? Our bodhisattva vows. There are so many beings... I vow to serve them. This practice is rich, and I vow to embody it. So we trust the stream, which is you right now. Oh, it just shifted. You right now. Knowing how to be satisfied. Hanshan, poet Hanshan, wrote, East of me... The old lady got rich three or four years ago. Used to be poorer than me. Now she laughs that I don't have money. She laughs that I've fallen behind. I laugh that she's gotten ahead. Both of us laughing, no stopping us. (laughs) East and West. 
Remember this theme from yesterday of when someone in the Western house dies, the Eastern house takes care of Let me read the poem again. East of me, the old lady got rich three or four years ago. Used to be poorer than me. Now she laughs that I don't have money. She laughs that I've fallen behind. I laugh that she's gotten ahead. Both of us laughing. No stopping us. East and West. Has anyone laughed yet on retreat? (laughs) You've been like, oh my God, I'm suffering so much. All this stuff stuck to you. And then you're like, whoa, oh my God, what is this? (laughs) And then you laugh. And then the bell rings. Like, oh. A minute ago, I hated the timekeeper. Now I love the timekeeper. <laughs> Has anyone had that one? I hate this. Every time so-and-so is the timekeeper, meditation's like so long, you know? And then they ring the bell, like, I love you so much. <laughs> there's a great story, if I remember it correctly, about... Um, it's a true story about there's a there's a monastery. This is a Japanese story, and um, they have a big. It's called a, a, a well. There's, there's a big temple bell outside, massive, massive one. In the retreat that we do in France, they have one of these huge, huge bells. Do you remember that bell? Yeah. And um, uh, <clears throat> the story is is this this kid was uh, trained to. Uh, as many of young people do, they become a teenager and they come to the monastery and start practicing. So maybe he's 11, 12 years old. Um, and uh, there's a meeting going on amongst the head uh, teachers and uh, the bell outside rings. And the quality of it, the quality of it, really, really touched the hearts of the head teachers. And they said, who? Who is that who rang the bell? And they go outside, and it turns out it's this little kid who's just come to the monastery. So the teacher says, how did you learn to ring the bell like that? And the kid says, when I was young, my parents taught me how to ring the bell. And they said, every time I ring the bell, many Buddhas spring forth. That's the story. Every time you ring the bell, all these Buddhas. Of course, because they're so happy the bell rang. (laughs) All these Buddhas. So the bell ringers are taking care of waking up our hearts, making us into Buddhas. And our job is to take care of our minds and to take care of our space. Some of you, I look around in the Zendo and your, your area is a mess. You've got like nine props and three pairs of socks and, I don't know, dead skin everywhere. It's really, really gross. I go in at night when you're all sleeping and I look at each area with a light, a special light. You wouldn't believe what I find. You also really want to take care of your posture. 
sometimes uh, when I sit down, I, I just take a little bit of time getting my pelvis grounded. And then I imagine that I've, I've been lowered down by strings, you know, like a puppet. So rather than like trying to sit up in relation to gravity, it's more like you're hanging from the sky. And it's not windy. <clears throat> and then when you, when you feel, even as you sit up, when you feel like you're hanging from the sky, there's a much lighter sense of the meditation posture. And your mouth really relaxed. When you inhale, your lower jaw drops. You can feel that. Your, your lower jaw drops. Just two millimeters when you inhale. And if you add a little smile in your lips, then your lower jaw won't drop a lot, but your mouth will relax when you inhale. And the bones in the sides of your face when you inhale, they go like this. They get wider. So when you're sitting, you want to feel how you're hanging in space, even though your sits bones are rooted. And your mouth and your face are really at ease. Like when you walk around and you look at these different deities, it's so wonderful to really look at their face. You know, If you walk by and go, oh, there's the Buddha statue again. On a dragon, no hair. I mean, that's not me. <laughs> but if you look at it and you say, oh, what's the, what, are, what are the alignment cues saying here? Then it will jump into your body. So you have that face. And always aware of your breathing, no matter what you're doing not just in sitting meditation, but through the day, always aware of your breathing. And not always focused on your breathing. So like in work meditation, you don't want to work and like try and stay focused on your breathing. It's too much multitasking. But you just want to know where your breath is. Right? So it's like you could be chopping something or you could be cleaning something. And it's not like you're cleaning and... <laughs> It's just you're cleaning, and, and you're aware that there's breathing happening. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? You can feel there's breathing happening, but it's not like in the foreground. <clears throat> so what I wanted to, to do for, for the remainder of the, of the talk today is um, <clears throat> just sketch out kind of like the landscape of meditation technique. Because I promised I would give how-to Dharma talks, uh, this, this retreat. And I think sometimes people hear a lot of different phrases, samadhi, mindfulness, awareness, concentration, letting go, uh, vipassana, right? Koans, <laughs> shikantaza. You hear all these like, whoa, yeah, great, I'm doing all that. So <clears throat> I like to imagine that there's kind of like a spectrum, all right? And there's two wings to the spectrum. 
One side is called shamata. So let's say that shamata. Shamata. Yeah. And shamata is the practice of calming down, chilling out, and stopping. And that's what we call so so mindfulness comes under the umbrella of shamata. Right? So an example of shamata is coming back to your breath, coming back to your breath, or for other people it's maybe coming back to sound, coming back to sound, coming back to the breath, over and over and over. And that's called shamatha practice, because when you do that, and you really commit to that, you start to chill out. Has everybody felt that? Kind of like, oh. All right. So, in shamatha practice, as it starts to get cultivated, we start entering different levels of shamatha that we call concentration. <laughs> Okay, so sometimes your attention's going off, it's coming back, it's going off, and then sometimes after a while, it just starts settling. And remember I talked about how you just start feeling a sense of spaciousness? You just feel open, and you just let go of your breathing. Or you don't even think let go of it, you're just, you've lost track of your breath because it's just gotten so calm, and you're just really open and things are okay. Maybe there's thoughts still, or sounds still, or some discomfort in the body, but it's all okay. And we call that concentration, you see? And there's two schools around this. One school says, if you just keep doing mindfulness, concentration happens. And it's true. And the other school says, you have to learn concentration techniques to really get concentrated. And most schools are on one side or the other. My philosophy is whenever you have a teacher that says, this is the way, you should say to yourself, oh yeah, that was the way for them. <laughs> right? Because different people need different things at different times of practice, so there can never be one way, because it's a stream. It's the banks are changing, whole thing's changing. So one of the ways you can um, practice is just keep trusting in the mindfulness of breathing or whatever you're mindful of. If something stronger comes in, like anger or real pain in the body or the sensations of anxiety, just let that be in the forefront, right? And then if you start getting really distracted around that stuff, just go back to your breathing. So different things can kind of pop up. You notice those for a while, then you come back to your breathing. If you wanted to explore a concentration practice, one of the great ways to start concentration is to use your body. So um, usually the first concentration practice I give to people is when you feel like you're in a sit where you're pretty calm and you're, you can, might say to yourself, hey, I'm kind of calm right now. Have you had this experience yet? Yeah, okay. I'm kind of chilled out right now. Then, 
you can go into your body and find a place in your body where there's pleasure. So it might be like somewhere in your inhale. And then you might go, oh yeah, in the inhale, it's actually like right here. Or maybe it's like off to the side. Or maybe it's like my hands are warm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like some place where there's some pleasure in your body. And then as you're breathing, you want to just let there be pleasure. Okay? Now, this is really hard. Because <laughs> what happens is, as soon as you see the pleasure, you're going to be like, oh yeah, Michael said the pleasure, and so now I'm going to try and like... <laughs> but you want to have a relationship to the pleasure like a cat. Okay? If you go, oh, come here, cat. You know, <laughs> it is not going to work. You have to be like, oh, I see you, and I'm not going to let you know that I see you. Even though you know I see you, not letting you know that I see you. So... So you're going to feel your breathing, you're going to notice the pleasure, but you're going to keep the pleasure over here. You can see the pleasure, but you're just going to keep the pleasure over here. And I promise you'll wreck it the first 20 times. You'll just be like, oh. <clears throat> what happens is, is if you can feel the pleasure, even though it might move in the body or change and stay with your breathing, the pleasure starts to grow. If you leave it alone, but you just keep your eye on it, it will start to grow. It will start to grow. The Buddha says that as this happens, pity arises, which is a, a joy. Some joy arises. Then the Buddha says that um, you should experience pleasure, and he uses a simile. He says, if there was a, a launderer or a launderer's apprentice, and they took a soap ball, so in the olden days, maybe some of the hippies in here still do this, but you, you wash your clothes with a ball of soap. It's like soap flakes, and they've been compressed together. Um, and um, <clears throat> the Buddha says, if, if a launderer took a, a water and dripped it into the soap ball, it would fill the whole ball until the entire ball is moist, but no moisture leaves the ball. Okay? So what you want to do with the pleasure is you, you feel the pleasure growing until your whole body is moist with pleasure, but it's not leaving your body. So there's no clinging to it. There's no wanting it to do something, because all that will kill it. So you see the psychology here, right? Like there's a lot you're working with there, is how to actually feel something and like just let it grow on its own. And this is one of the easiest ways for most people to start to explore concentration, to start to feel concentration practice. And it gets the attention so stable that the hindrances don't really come in. They don't penetrate when you're feeling this pleasure. 
judgment doesn't come in, nothing really comes in. And this can be a very, very healing uh, experience. To have an experience of yourself that's pleasurable, where there's like not so much stuff. So anyways, this is a good way, if anybody wants to explore this, um, of checking out how concentration starts to develop. And some people try it and they're just not for them. They're just not into it. And in my, in my life, you know, even, even recently, like, I've found concentration so easy. Like, I'm not a concentrated person by nature at all. Um, but I found concentration meditation really, really easy. And um, especially when you approach it physically and really powerful. Um, I find mindfulness of breathing really hard because my mind's always going off. It's a disaster, always coming back. <clears throat> and probably most of us feel like this. Every time you sit, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> And so the neat thing about learning specific concentration practices is if you kind of get the hang of it and you like it, then you sit down and it's like, boom, right there. It's right there. Sometimes you can get concentrated in three seconds. So that's the value of the paradigm of you should learn specific concentration techniques. Okay, so... so that was a very fast version of concentration. But so, so that's shamatha. That's one side of practice. Okay? The other side of practice is called in Pali vipassana or in Sanskrit vipassana. Pasha is an I and V means to go in. So it's usually translated as insight. Insight. So insight is the practice of when there's calmness to really look closely at what's there. To really look at the stream and see a few things about the stream. One is suffering. The stream of life has within it a current of suffering. And Anything other than turning towards it increases the suffering. I mean, sometimes I think we've had this experience where you're suffering. It's okay. Someone else is suffering. It's okay. Or you've had the experience where you're suffering and it's not okay and someone else is suffering, and you really want to end that for them. <clears throat> Another thing you might want to have insight into, or I'm going to say investigate, is that everything that comes through the stream is impermanent. And that the stream's not separate from you. So the me that's really me, is the stream. It's me now. 
and me now, and me now. It's not one thing, but it really feels like it sometimes. And then, the third thing we might really want to investigate is that none of this is happening to me. It feels like me that life is happening to. But when we look more closely, the me that I think is me is the stream. Is not separate from what's happening. And there's ways that we investigate these themes. Suffering, impermanence, not self or not identifying with self. And so sometimes I might give you practices. Like some of you, I might give a, a koan or I might uh, give you a question like, who is this happening to? Who's breathing? Who's sick? Who's sick? Who's grieving? Who's fighting? To really look at that. So, so in that, so then your meditation might be for the first five minutes, you sit down, you feel your breathing, and then you might start to ask this question, who's breathing? Or is this permanent? Or can I, can I turn towards this? You see, so that's the investigation. Now, the most important part of practice is vipassana. You can't do good vipassana without the shamatha piece. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Because if you're just into shamatha, you can't do vipassana. Because there, you can't investigate something if there's nothing there. So there's people who like really get lost in concentration practices. And, and, and I think they're really cool because they're like the Olympics of the mind. It's like, I'm going to get so concentrated and see what kind of cool shit can happen. Because like really cool stuff happens. Really interesting and really scary stuff happens actually sometimes in concentration. But it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't deepen your life. The most important part is the investigation, is the inquiry. That's the most important part of the practice. But you can't do it without the other side. Or it's just intellectual. So then there's these two other terms. One of them, you can nod if that made sense, just like the map is making sense. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Investigation, inquiry, what's going on? Chilling out. <laughs> okay, two sides. In Zen practice, we have these two other terms that we use. One is shikantaza, the other is zazen. Zazen is just a name for meditation. But shikantaza means just sitting. Shinru Suzuki, a great Zen teacher, he defines uh, shikantaza as just this. And I would say you can take the just out. 
this, 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 stream, this. Now, shikantaza is the hardest meditation practice there is. And I would say if there's a central practice that I teach, it's shikantaza. Which is, you sit, and you just sit. And shikantaza is the combination of shamatha and vipassana. It's, it's collapsing them together. You just sit. Sounds really easy, but you just sit. Dogen calls it the Dharma gate of repose. You enter that gate, just sit there. And in the sitting, there's a bit of investigation. There's some calmness, maybe sometimes the breath. There's different tools at your disposal, but we're not so focused on the tool. Our main practice is just sitting, just sitting, just this. And anyone who's tried this practice, this is really hard. But if you get a little technique under your belt, once in a while, I encourage you in your sitting to just drop all your technique and just sit there. Sometimes the way I teach it is don't meditate. Just how this moment is. Perfection, imperfection. Perfectly not perfect. Thoughts are still there in the background, but they're like in the periphery. They're just not bothering you. Just sit there. Perfect, imperfect. Maybe not imperfect. Perfect, imperfect. No, imperfect, but real. It's like when, uh, you know the rakasu that I wear sometimes? On the back there's some green stitching. And the way it works when you finish sewing your rakasu is um, you, you sew a green line, which represents a pine needle. And then you give the rakasu to your teacher, and then the teacher sews a broken line. You just did the perfect rakasu, and then the teacher writes, imperfect. <laughs> no, not imperfect. I don't use that word. You do a perfect rakasu, and then the teacher writes, real. <laughs> it's like in a Jewish wedding. At the end of the wedding, you, um, at the end of the ceremony, you take a perfect glass, and you stomp on it and smash it. Karina and I, when we got married in the summer, we used uh, uh, um, some important ceramics. One ceramic, one glass. And um, because you have a perfect ceremony, and then you break it, and you make it real. No matter how perfect your meditation is, 
it's going to become real. Because stuff's going to show up that you can't control. From your own heart, from your memory. I was thinking about this at breakfast today when we were doing Oriyoki, that so much of how you fold your cloth before you put the bowls down is determined by how it was ironed. So you might be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do a perfect thing. And then it like shifts a little bit because of, of the ancestry of the cloth. And you have to work with it. So you make your perfect lotus, but it's real. And it's shifted because of the ancestry of the cloth. Someone once asked Shinru Suzuki, what's the value of shikantaza? And he said, I didn't know the value of shikantaza just sitting until I started to die. Just to sit in your life. And letting go of all this baggage. You know it's here. The baggage is there. You can't iron it perfect. There's this great New Yorker cartoon that I've always loved where there's like a group of people at an airport around the baggage carousel. And one person's pointing and going, there's my resentment. <laughs> <laughs> So we need rituals like this to let go of our baggage. I mean, doesn't everybody feel a couple pounds lighter? Maybe bloated from all the beans and whatever, but a couple pounds lighter. And the ritual we're going to do around New Year's tonight is really about letting go of our baggage. Not worrying about your baggage. Worrying about getting rid of your baggage is more baggage. But actually letting go of our baggage. Because karma follows you like a shadow. You know. <clears throat> and you can soften the baggage through forgiveness. It's hard to forgive people. It's hard to forgive ourselves, isn't it? Forgiveness is saying, I'm going to set you free. Picture someone in your life right now that you can't forgive. And how much you spend, how much energy you spend on that. Maybe you've spent the whole retreat on that. Forgiveness is like, I'm going to set you free. It doesn't mean I have to like you. I don't like you. But I'm going to set you free. Because resentment or not being able to forgive, it just ties you down. 
and also repentance. It's the end of the year, and repentance is a good practice too, which is like, I did so many stupid things. Maybe I didn't even mean it. I mean, how many dumb things did you do today? (laughs) And like, we're not even really talking. the abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center, uh, Mel Weitzman, who's still teaching. He's the teacher of Norman Fisher, who who many of you have studied with. Listen to what he says. This is about how how to bring this practice into our our lives. Uh, Don't discuss other people's faults. That's right. Just look at yourself and examine your own life and don't blame others for what's happening to you. You made me angry. No. You did something and I got angry. Do you hear the difference? You made me angry. No. You did something and I got angry. He gives another example. You walked by me and made me fall in love with you. (laughs) no you walked by and I fell in love in other words he says take responsibility for your own feelings take responsibility for your own thoughts and your own actions and don't blame if you can refrain from blaming then you can examine yourself in a very clear way no matter what even if someone else is wrong This is a very important point. Even if someone else appears to be at fault, don't fall into fault finding. See if you can do that. See what that brings up for you. Don't explore other people's affairs. Just take care of your own life. Don't gossip. Don't pick into someone else's life. Just make sure you're doing the right thing. Make sure you're following your own intentions. That's what we're doing in Shikantaza. We're just sitting. And when we start going fault-finding, and when we start going gossiping, we turn the light inward again, come back to the stream again. When you take these practices into your heart, you'll see that it's easier to forgive. It's easier to see shit that you've done wrong without being so, without pulling out the sword. And then you become your own teacher. Mindfulness practice, awareness practice, presence in a Buddhist context has a goal. And the goal of the practice is for you to become your own teacher. What does that mean? It means to be upright, not to drown, and to meet what's happening creatively. The Buddha said at the end of his life that practice is to become independent in the Dharma. 
It means that wherever you go, in whatever situation you're in, you bring the lamp of practice with you. If you're lost, you know where to find the practice. You still need a teacher. There's more to learn. There's stuff you can't see. But the goal is for you to be independent. To become a teacher, your own teacher, the most important things are that you have shamatha, <laughs> you can calm down, and you can investigate and have really strong and skillful powers of investigating. Asking yourself, how do I meet this? As soon as you ask yourself, how do I meet this? You become upright. It doesn't mean that you have to solve all the issues of your life. We can't ever solve all the issues of our life. There's so much unresolved stuff we're all going to live with. Right? That's real. That's real. It was true for the Buddha, too. In the last days of the Buddha's life, he was really suffering from stomach pain. And he couldn't resolve it. He didn't go running around trying to find homeopathics. He lay down with his community, with Ananda. He lay down between two sal trees and died. Sometimes we think the goal of practice is compassion or peace or non-duality, and these are great ideals. But these days I just say to people, if you really want to practice, then your goal should be becoming your own teacher. To have confidence. And then you'll know what to do. I meet so many kinds of people. And that's my hope for everybody. I want to read you an email that I got uh, two days ago. Michael. Oh, it's not an email. It's a Facebook uh, message. I don't get emails anymore. I just Facebook things. <laughs> Hi, Michael. I hope to find you and your family well. I live in Belfast. The suffering that's going on is getting out of hand. I took up yoga and meditation to help with my depression. There have been four people that have taken their own life, all from the same family. <clears throat> I would like to reach out to these people in 2016 and try to be there for the ones who think there's no way out. If you could please find a way to help me do this, I would be appreciated. I live in these communities and it's hard to see these people take their own lives. I get the same email from somebody in Athens. It sounds a little different. It says, the unemployment rate for young people is so high. 
I get the same email from a friend in a northern community in BC. The First Nations populations here, the young people are suffering like crazy. The water is terrible. I want to do something. So we all know there isn't like one thing to do. But we do this practice to open our hearts to suffering so that when someone sends this message, you respond with your whole heart and you feel their suffering. And maybe for some of you, your response is going to be, I really need to take care of my life so I can serve people. And maybe some of you, your response is, my job is a bullshit job. And I need a different kind of work. Because there's people suffering and I want to go help. And some other people are like, I've been helping with all my energy. And now I just need to go live in a monastery for a little while. Which is a great way to suffer, by the way. If you really want to suffer, you should go live in a monastery for a little while. a lot in this talk today. Sorry for talking so much. You know. The truth is, is that I just miss you all. I, because I, I, I don't see many of you as much as I want to, so I feel like once we're in this environment, there's like so much. John Cage says that a teacher should get as much out of the students as possible, and the students should get as much out of the teacher as possible. <laughs> So I hope uh, in these talks over the past few days that, that you feel like I've kind of mapped out a landscape of how you practice on retreat. And you have to find a way to take the, so many things you've learned in this short retreat <clears throat> into your community, into your body, into your family, into your ecosystem. Because at the end of the day, it's not for us, this practice. We think it's for us, but we don't get the benefit because we're just the stream. You know? So, don't wound your heart trying to get across the stream. Keep the stream right here. Mm -hmm.